You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, Leaders and Legends LLC, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find leaders and legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Bruce Levine, who just wrote a brand new biography of Thaddeus Stevens. Who is Thaddeus Stevens? Well, you know him better as Tommy Lee Jones from the movie Lincoln in a brilliant portrayal of, of the arch abolitionist Thaddeus Stevens from Pennsylvania, who was was emancipation cool before it was cool, to say the least. Bruce Levine is the best-selling author of four books on the Civil War era, including The Fall of the House of Dixie and Confederate Emancipation, which received an award for Civil War scholarship and was named one of the top 10 works of nonfiction by, of its year by the Washington Post. He is a professor emeritus of history at the University of Illinois, which has the fake Assembly Hall, while Indiana University has the actual Assembly Hall. Thank you very much, Professor, for joining us. Thank you for having me, Robert. Your new book is called Thaddeus Stevens, Civil War Revolutionary Fighter for Racial Justice. I'm sure it took quite a few years to both research and write. But why is 2020, 2021 a great time for this book to come out? Good question. Um, well, I think everybody remembers the Black Lives Matter matters uh, marches of the summer. Um, and uh, currently hearings on um, a, an attempt to set up an investigation of the subject of reparations for slavery. So the question of um, the status of African-Americans in American society is very much central to American politics again. And I think the story of the Civil War and Reconstruction sheds a good deal of light on that subject. In the pantheon of, and we're going to get into his career in, in more minute detail, but in, in, on the Mount Rushmore of people who made the 13th Amendment happen and the 14th and 15th, obviously. Who would you put on that Mount Rushmore along with Thaddeus Stevens? Well, certainly Abraham Lincoln. Um, but people like Charles Sumner and uh, uh, Chase of Ohio and uh, Joshua Giddings and uh, a whole host of radical, so-called radical Republicans, um, as well, of course, as Frederick Douglass and uh, African-American abolitionists who had been pressing for the 13th Amendment, uh, like Stevens, long before Lincoln endorsed it. I think you've got a long list of people whose faces would belong on that uh, mountain. One of the questions I like to ask historians, especially biographers, is was there anything about Stevens's early life that marked him out for greatness? 
Well, I guess it depends on what you mean by that. If you mean, was there anything that would have caught your eye if you were looking at him? Um, I don't think there were anything, there was anything uh, tremendous in that era. He was an avid reader, an avid student, um, tried to set up a library in the corner of Pennsylvania where there was none. Uh, uh, but there was a good deal in his life that certainly shaped uh, the man who would grab your attention um, and that contributed significantly to uh, the Civil War historian, sorry, Civil War uh, <laughs> revolutionary that he would become. He had a deformity, a club foot. How much did that fuel his desire to be respected and accepted in other ways? Because we all know how cruel people can be when in encountering a physical deformity. They're cruel now. I can only imagine what it was like. He was born in 1792, so he's an 18th century uh, birth date, birth year. Apparently, the children around him were cruel. And did taunt him. His brother was even in worse shape. His brother had two club feet. Uh, And we know from a neighbor that that taunting hurt his feelings. Um, Mm. uh, I would guess that it certainly did contribute in his case to a determination to overcome uh, uh, that marginalization. But so did a number of other aspects of his life that he emphasized more than the deformity, such as simply being born into poverty uh, and feeling uh, not only the material effects of that, the deprivations of that, but also uh, uh, feeling condescension from others who were better off. And he certainly set his sights on eliminating that kind of condescension toward the poor and trying to uplift the poor of all races. It would be somewhat, I mean, it wouldn't be somewhat, it's crazy to try to compare any of our lives, even the lives of the poor, whether today or in the early 19th century to the lives of slaves. But did he feel in some way that, Hey, I don't have it as bad as you do, but I've had it really bad. And that makes me help identify with you. Probably. I'm I'm sure, as you say, that he knew very clearly that whatever he suffered was nothing compared with what slaves suffered. But having suffered what he did uh, certainly made him uh, sensitive to the suffering of others, more so, he would say more than once, than those uh, who were born into prosperity. When you read about Stevens, it became clear that not only did he feel that education was his way out, but it was also clear that his his mother felt that. They were abandoned by her husband, his father. So hard scrabble, to use a Ulysses S. Grant phrase, hard scrabble was the way to go. But like many of us who don't have a particular talent, Every time I put a screwdriver in my head, my kids, my in hand, my kids just laugh. Like, what are you doing with that? Like, you can't possibly know what you're doing. We know that education is our ticket out. Is that something that was in Stevens's mind? And then how did that love of education, the understanding that it was the ticket, influence him later on as he tried to help others? Another good question. Um, Stevens was pushed along the root of education by at least two factors. One was the physical deformity that made it difficult for him to do very much farm work. And that convinced his mother that uh, together with his native intelligence um, was going to require that he do something with his mind rather than with the strength of his body. And so she determined fairly early that he was going to have to go into the professions. And she kindled in him 
a love of learning and a love of books. Um, and that kindling produced quite a flame. So he became a very avid reader um, and a very hardworking student. And later on in life, but not very much later, when he uh, joined the Pennsylvania legislature, he played a key role in advocating uh, the preservation of a newly created system of public education in that state. And it took quite a bit of doing to defend that new system because there was a great deal of opposition to it. And Stevens spoke often, both in the legislature and in the subsequent state constitutional convention, about the importance of education in opening up avenues of opportunity, especially to the poor. He became an attorney, which obviously was different then than it is now. Uh, but it wasn't long. I find it fascinating. He lived in Gettysburg. And there's a great story about um, his when the Confederates attacked it in, in July of 63, June, July of 63, that they targeted one of his foundries. I'll ask you about that in a second. But while in Pennsylvania, he caught the political bug. What drove him to go that route? Because as much as we like to think 21st century politics is rough and tumble, it, in my view, doesn't hold a candle to what people had to put up with in the early to mid 1800s. Well, on that subject, on the, uh, on the subject of uh, handling the rough and tumble, Thaddeus Stevens was a tough cookie um, and had... Uh, the ability to dish it out as well as take it. Um, and so I'm quite sure that uh, the prospect of being attacked uh, would not have made him bat an eyelash. But Thaddeus Stevens had uh, goals of transforming the country. And that could only be done, he believed, through politics. He wanted to democratize the United States to a much greater extent than it was already democratic. And there was no other way to do that, uh, but through politics. And he had very strong political views, not only about democracy, but about the importance of uh, uh, getting the government to help stimulate the growing capitalist economy of its time. And he was of the opinion that the growth of that economy required active government support just as he believed that making opportunities available within that economy uh, to those born into poverty also required government intervention. So those goals, no doubt, propelled him along the political career uh, that he would follow. And did he find the presence of slavery as, as the exact opposite of the opportunities he sought to give to others? Absolutely. Stevens uh, believed very early that this was the most oppressive, the worst institution in human history, uh, the most oppressive, the most brutal, the most unfair, and uh, very early in life, uh, conditioned by his childhood, it's worth saying, um, set himself against slavery. So, he, so as you note, he became a political figure in Pennsylvania, but he was born in Vermont, which was the first state in the Union whose constitution denounced slavery. That's what, is that the 14th state? Is that right? 14th, 15th? It, entered the, it entered the Union in um, 91, the year before his birth. Yeah, because it was either right before or right after Kentucky. So you have these two juxtaposed, you know, kind of slave slash free states. Uh, one of the questions in reading about his deformity, which if you I'm going to ask you about the movie Lincoln uh, later, we were lucky enough to have Harold Holzer on the Leaders and Legends podcast, and, and he talked about his involvement in it. But but they. In the movie, you notice that he limps. Or clearly hit had a deformity, which they didn't show that he limps. And one of the first, when I started reading about the civil war 30 years ago, one of the first words I encountered that I didn't know 
This was pre-internet. So you had to actually go look up this giant, this big word in a giant dictionary. And the word was dyspeptic, which means grouchy or grumpy because of dyspepsia, which is a stomach ailment. And I read that word as it was being used to describe multiple times Jefferson Davis, who just always seemed grumpy and bitchy and mad. And it made me think when reading about Stevens, was his deformity a driving force in establishing his personality, not just his willingness to fight, not just his views and his sense of, of compassion, but just, was he just mad all the time because of his leg? I don't think he was mad all the time, but I think he had developed an early reflex of uh, defensive offense. Um, he, he must have, uh, judging from what he became, developed an early determination not to put up with uh, guff from others, probably deriving, at least in part, from uh, the subject of his deformity. Um, he and uh, people said, you do not take this guy on, uh, certainly verbally. Uh, one congressman says that I just as soon uh, wrestle with a porcupine as <laughs> argue with Thaddeus Stevens. Uh, Stevens also developed himself physically despite his uh, deformity so that he was um, uh, physically well-developed individual and probably capable of handling himself uh, physically as well. But I think this had to have contributed, as you suggest, to this combativity. One of the problems, though, that we have with uh, studying someone like Stevens, as with Lincoln, is there's no diary. Um, mm. And it, so it, it makes it difficult to read his inner life. There's very little memoir type material. And Stevens' handwriting was one of the worst I have ever seen. <laughs> and his correspondence <laughs> complained about it too. Uh, how do you expect me to read this? Um, and so even reading his letters is quite a chore. So penetrating into his psyche is a major problem. And he also had another physical ailment, which you see in the movie, that caused him to lose his hair. What was right. that? Alopecia. His hair fell out relatively early, uh, as a result of which he never appeared in public without wearing a wig. And there's a story about that as well. Um, you probably know, you almost certainly know, that in the 19th century, it was common for people to ask public figures for a lock of their hair uh, so that they could have it as a keepsake. Keepsake, I suppose it's an early version of an autograph. So one woman came up to Stevens at one point in his life and asked for a lock of his hair and he took off his wig and said, you may have them all, madam. Um, so he was not a vain individual. She take it? Did she take it? The story doesn't say. But you would have taken it. Would I have taken his wig? Perhaps. <laughs> his Thaddeus Stevens's journey in politics begins like like most political. Not many people go from never having held public office to president of the United States or some exalted title like that, like say uh, Dwight Eisenhower did. There's a, there's a path and you start with lower offices, usually at the state level. Talk a little bit, please, about how Thaddeus Stevens went from someone interested in politics, following politics, to becoming a United States congressman. Well, he starts off with very, as you, again, as you suggest, some uh, low-level local offices, city council, uh, the equivalent of a city council. Um, and he is repeatedly re-elected to that position. I think at one point he becomes uh, the equivalent of the chair of the city council. He always hopes to become a United States senator and is disappointed never to have reached that point. But he does uh, make his way into uh, the House of Representatives. Well, first of all, the uh, uh, Pennsylvania House of Representatives. And he joins and helps to form 
the Anti-Masonic Party, which is a very strangely named uh, uh, political party, which, however, had a good deal of political influence in the first few decades of the 19th century. And it is strong both in his native state of Vermont and, as it happens, in his adoptive state of Pennsylvania. And it is as the candidate of this long forgotten party that he really begins to make a name for himself um, in the state legislature. Um, and the anti-Masonic, of- the anti-Masonic party Masons were a secret society and they were an exclusive society and they were operating with all these special rules and traditions and kind of uh, uh, mystifying um, procedures and it was seen as and correct me if I'm wrong on any of this it was seen as anathema to an open free society like the United States you're you're quite right um, uh, and in addition to all these characteristics its members in those days swore to give preference to one another in all walks of life including politics and so this was seen as a uh, by people, not only Stevens, but John Quincy Adams and a number of other prominent individuals as a real threat to the survival of political democracy. If there's a secret society uh, whose members, whose, whose member, let's see, how can I say this? Whose members belong secretly and their status cannot be known to the general public, but who are collaborating with one another behind the scenes to advance only one another uh, rather than anyone outside their charmed circle. I think it's quite reasonable to look upon that as something dangerous. Did Um, he ever try to join and why was he rejected? He did not try to join. He considered it on principle um, to be a wrong to build such an organization. Um, now, somebody, you know, next week will discover that sure enough that Stevens tried to join. <laughs> but I've seen no evidence of it. And quite the contrary, uh, everything I've seen said that he never would have sought to join an organization like that. But a series of political parties collapsed underneath Stevens, starting with uh, the anti-Masonic Party, whose success is so great, by the way, that eventually it goes out of business for want of a constituency, at which point he moves over to the Whig Party, uh, which with the Democratic Party was one of the the two major political parties contending for power locally and nationally in the middle of the 19th century. And then the Whig Party in the 1850s breaks up. And it's at that point that he sets out to build the uh, Republican Party, along with the cast of characters with whom we're familiar. He had, an, before we get to the the time in, in, in Congress, it's, it's fair to say he had a relatively successful political career, despite the fact that he took some pretty tough stances. In other words, wasn't scared to be outspoken on issues that made people uncomfortable. That's right. He He did very well politically. He developed evidently a Uh, a a strong relationship with his constituency, despite the fact that on a number of occasions he bucked his constituency. So for example, in the fight over public schools, uh, a lot of his well-to-do neighbors did not like the position he was uh, taking on public schools. They didn't see why they should pay taxes to support schools uh, when they had, let's say, Uh, in some cases, no children who would be attending those schools, or they could afford to be sending their children, if they had children, to private schools. Um, And so, in fact, after fighting successfully for the public schools, that was the one year that um, Stevens was not reelected to the state legislature. Uh, So he could feel consequences of going against uh, his constituency. And in Uh, 1850, when he opposed the Compromise of 1850, uh, a sectional compromise between North and South uh, that included a new law strengthening the ability to capture so-called fugitive slaves, 
when he vigorously opposed that compromise, the Whig Party refused to, to renominate him for the House of Representatives. Uh, so he was prepared to suffer the consequences of taking unpopular positions or positions at least unpopular with his given political party. But once he joined the Republican Party, he was never denied renomination again and was never denied re-election again. He had found a vehicle that fit his politics much better than any earlier one had done. Is it fair to say that the early manifestation of the Republican Party was not as radical and forceful on the issue of slavery as Stevens would have liked? Famously, the Republican, and again, please interject, no extension of slavery into their territories. That was one of their founding principles. But as far as I can remember, there wasn't a huge push as part of the platform to eliminate slavery where it existed. No, there wasn't. Um, And uh, Stevens subscribed to a view of the Constitution at that time, which was extremely widespread, that said that under the Constitution, the federal government does not have the right to abolish slavery within the states. And Stevens, prior to the Civil War, did not try to use the federal government to abolish slavery within the states. But he fairly early advocated uh, something that eventually comes to be called the denationalization of slavery, which calls upon the federal government to use all of its power wherever that power exists to ban slavery. So that's not only in the territories, but also in Washington, D.C., in the uh, territorial waters, in all federal forts and federal uh, military installations in general, and even in the interstate slave trade, the buying and selling of slaves across uh, the state borders. And uh, he also uh, opposes in, uh, the, the uh, operation of the fugitive slave law. None of those things appear in the platform of the Republican Party of 1856, the first national campaign that the Republican Party wages. It simply calls for the abolition of slavery uh, in the territories. And Stevens considers that, for the first time, an adequate anti-slavery platform to join. It's worth saying that he... uh, refused to join earlier and more radical versions of an anti-slavery party. He refused in the 1830s to join the small Liberty Party and in the late 1840s to to join the so-called Free Soil Party, Mm -hmm. which had a platform very similar to what the Republicans eventually adopted because they thought they were too small to do any good. They were too small to uh, win enough votes to... um, Uh, change anything important. It's only in the 1850s that he, like a number of others with a similar outlook, decide that now is the time to put all our chips on the subject of slavery, to build a party that is primarily devoted to the crusade against slavery. And the attempt to prevent its expansion into the territories they all view as the thin edge uh, of the wedge. Years later, during the Civil War, when people were trying to figure out if Ulysses S. Grant was a Republican or Democrat, he once said, when asked about his vote for president, that in 1856, he voted for James Buchanan because he didn't know him and against John C. Fremont because he did. How important was personality back then and how close did it come on more than one occasion to physical confrontation as tensions rose solely over the issue of slavery? Well, the first question I find hard to answer. Um, How important was personality? I don't think that it was as important as it is today. 
because most voters never laid eyes, for example, on presidential candidates in those days. I think it would have been perfectly possible for presidential candidates in most of that era to walk through uh, a town three states away and not be recognized. Um, there was not only, of course, no television, there was no radio, there was certainly, of course, no internet, but the, even newspapers could not carry photographs because the technology did not yet exist for transposing photographs into print. So the best you could do was uh, carve an engraving based on a photograph and use that in a newspaper. Uh, so if you couldn't even lay eyes on somebody, it would have been hard for most people to form a political uh, allegiance based on an acquaintance with the candidate's personality. Um, though personality played a big role in closer quarters uh, among politicians or within a local constituency, no doubt uh, it had a much greater significance. On the second part of your question, there was a great deal of violence and threat of violence in the Congress uh, and in the Senate as the Civil War approaches. Uh, we're most familiar, I think, with the case of Charles Sumner being beaten into unconsciousness a few years before the Civil War for the crime of having uh, insulted a South Carolina politician in an anti-slavery speech. Harlot, on, the harlot slavery. Exactly. Um, and so the uh, uh, relative of the man thereby insulted took it upon himself when, Steve, uh, when Sumner is sitting at his desk. Sumner is a great big guy. Uh, and so his knees came right up under the floor, uh, under the bottom of his Senate chamber desk. And Sumner is there writing to his constituents, answering his mail. And this congressman walks in, calls him out, raises his gutta perka walking stick over his head and proceeds to beat Sumner into unconsciousness. And Sumner tries to struggle to his feet. His legs get caught in the, uh, in the desk and pulls the desk up. So strong was Sumner, but not before um, he lost consciousness. While Stevens was physically threatened on more than one occasion, um, in on the floor of the House of Representatives, uh, both with being beaten with fists, but also with knives. And on one occasion, as this starts to become familiar to Republicans, his colleagues rush forward and surround him, make a defensive perimeter around Stevens so that he cannot be attacked successfully by the Southerners. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, Leaders and Legends LLC, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today is Bruce Levine, author of Thaddeus Stevens, Civil War Revolutionary, Fighter for Racial Justice. I'm going to ask you the most broad-based question I can possibly ask you, because I know that you're going to be able to answer it very quickly. Describe the political atmosphere and environment in antebellum the United States. What led us to the Civil War from a political perspective, and what was that environment like? Well, I think unquestionably, what led the country to civil war was the issue of slavery. It was both the issue of slavery and the fact of slavery. And I make a distinction mm -hmm. because uh, the issue of slavery as a central political division in the United States begins growing in around the 1820s. Over the course of time, it gets more and more central to politics. By the middle of the 1850s, it is the political question on which people are beginning to, I mean, voters are beginning to choose their uh, party of preference. 
Underneath that is the fact that the division of the country between slave and non-slave states is making itself felt in all aspects of society. Uh, Religious denominations are splitting uh, 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 because of differences, theological differences and political differences over slavery. Slavery shapes values and institutions in the South in ways that a free labor society uh, is not shaped. And so uh, the difference in social relationships and economy uh, make themselves felt in all sorts of uh, cultural and secondary and tertiary aspects. In the 1850s, Northerners and Southerners both by and large come to recognize that this is the key question of national politics. Will slavery survive and possibly grow? Or will anti-slavery forces find a way to, in Lincoln's terms, put it in the course of ultimate extinction? A few times I've had discussions with folks about, and they're nice discussions, so I don't want to act like they're hateful, when people say that the issue of slavery was not the main cause of the civil war. And I kind of just shrug my shoulders and go every single compromise prior to the war to avoid war was based on what issue? Of course, slavery. And they go, well, and I'm like, the politicians knew the people knew the thought leaders, the philosophers, the activists, they knew. They didn't want to touch it unless they absolutely had to. And then with a force to the United States, which usually has a, a maybe not so much these days, but in its past has shown a significant ability to craft compromises, which may not solve the problem, but perhaps lets a little current out of the line. We were able to do that. And then eventually when we come to Lincoln's election, we couldn't. Did Stevens welcome this confrontation? Well, he certainly welcomed, to use that word, confrontation over slavery. He did not welcome disunion. He did not welcome war. Stevens would have liked to see uh, the Republican Party victorious and the Republican Party begin to implement a program to do away with slavery. And, and he was slow to draw the sword, figuratively speaking, even as secession began at the end of 1860. Uh, so he was not looking forward to what he already anticipated was going to be a bloody war if it came to that. But once fair- the war began, mm-hmm. it was something else entirely. Is it fair to say that there were some abolitionists who just said, well, let them go, let the South go? Well, there were some who said that, and there were some non-abolitionists, but people who opposed slavery who said that. Horace Greeley, the editor of the New York Daily Tribune, which was uh, whose weekly uh, uh, issue circulated widely through the Midwest, it was a very influential paper, uh, famously said, go, my errant sisters, go on your way. And Stevens and others and eventually had no intention of allowing that to happen, neither did Lincoln. It would have meant tearing the country in half. Uh, Set aside the fact that it would have condemned the slaves to slavery for uh, an indefinite future. Uh, It would have, uh, Republicans were convinced, put the country as a whole on the course of ultimate extinction. Because once cutting the country in half that way, they felt sure that would not be the end of the splitting. Lincoln's election in November of 1860, excuse me, leads to the secession of South Carolina. I think it's December 20th, 1860. Then the war kind of, then other states start to secede. And then you have the first Fort Sumpners in April of 61. Then you have Battle of Bull Run, which is July 21st, 61. So, so the events happen pretty quickly, one right after another. Did Stevens understand earlier than most 
because of his time in Congress, that this war was going to be a long one, a bloody one? Absolutely. There were, and in this respect, he saw further than many of his colleagues. Uh, People on both sides of this war initially thought it was going to be a short war. Both sides underestimated the other's commitment Mm -hmm. to winning this war. And both sides underestimated the other's ability to wage war. And that was certainly true uh, uh, on the Union side. And Stevens was unusual in saying, this is not going to be quick. And this is not going to be easy. As he says later on, our officers are no better than theirs. Our soldiers are no better than theirs. Um, this is not going to be resolved um, successfully on our side without changing the way we approach this war. And his ability to understand the difficulty of defeating the Confederacy was part of his success in winning the rest of his party to more stringently anti-slavery measures during the war. Let me ask you about a couple of people real quick and his, his kind of interaction with them or friendship. There are obviously several compelling figures of the civil war, even on the Confederacy. I mean, you have to look at, at, at Lee and whatever you think of his cause, which is obviously terrible, but his skill and impact was, was undeniable. But on my, on my Mount Rushmore, perhaps even Mount Olympus of civil war figures, there's always a special place for Frederick Douglass. Did Stevens have, Thaddeus Stevens have much of a relationship with him? And if so, describe it for us. I think Stevens met Douglass once or twice, but I don't think that they had a close relationship. I think there was mutual admiration on both sides. It is certainly true that Frederick Douglass um, recognized and admired what Stevens was doing in Congress. Uh, And uh, Douglass eventually puts Stevens' uh, portrait on his own wall in commemoration of that man after uh, uh, Stevens has passed on. Um, I believe it's true that Stevens subscribed to Douglass's newspaper and followed Douglas's career, but I don't think that there was a close ongoing collaboration. I've mentioned this a few times, and before I ask you about the relationship between Stevens and Lincoln, let me ask you quickly, what did you think of the movie Lincoln and Tommy Lee Jones' portrayal of Stevens, which, I mean, your grade matters more than my grade, but I thought he captured him in a terrific manner. Well, I, I, I really enjoyed the movie. Uh, all three times that I watched it. Um, (laughs) I thought, and and I like Tommy Lee Jones a great deal. Um, I thought it was a little odd hearing Vermont-born Thaddeus Stevens speaking with a Texas accent. Um, But um, (laughs) aside from that, I thought it was a nice portrayal of Stevens' personality. What I, what I, what, I did not uh, like was what was, in my opinion, a portrayal of Stevens as so stubborn and so extreme that he created a problem for the achievement of the 13th Amendment and that only Stevens' uh, supposed backing away in public on the floor of the House from his own so-called extreme views made it possible to pass the 13th Amendment. As I said earlier, I think that's a misrepresentation of what takes place in that scene. (coughs) Stevens was not quieting his own views, uh, uh, but rather was enunciating his views. Uh, And the film does not say, but which was true and important, Thaddeus Stevens was calling for what becomes the 13th Amendment a full year before Abraham Lincoln endorses the idea Mm. of such an amendment. So Stevens 
is more the author of that amendment than Lincoln was. There's a line in the movie, which is a direct quote, but please disabuse me uh, of this uh, assertion if it's wrong. But there's a line in the movie in which Tommy Lee Jones says, the greatest measure of the 19th century was passed by corruption aided and abetted by the purest man in America, meaning Abraham Lincoln. I think that, that I think that's an accurate quote. I think that's an accurate quote. Uh, it's important to remember, though, why the arm twisting and log rolling uh, was necessary to get the 13th Amendment passed when it was passed. In fact, the Republicans at the end of 1860 war had just won uh, a series of elections uh, to Congress and in the newly seated Congress, which would not yet take its seat until a few months into 1865, they would by themselves have had enough votes to pass the 13th Amendment. But Lincoln wanted it done right away. He wanted it done by the sitting lame duck Congress, which the Republicans did not yet control by a large enough margin to pass it. And so it was necessary to resort to these particular measures that are shown in the movie. <laughs> well, I think from a historical point of view, <clears throat> excuse me, seem to be going through adolescence here. Uh, from a historical point of view, that was a done deal once the, ele- once the Republicans had swept the 1864 elections. So if that Congress had not passed it, the next one certainly would have. I alluded to it earlier the relationship between Lincoln and Stevens. There's a great scene in the movie where they're like in some kitchen or some basement. They're kind of going back and forth where Lincoln's talking about his plan for reconstruction. Stevens had a much more harsh plan for reconstruction. You know, there were so many, it came, it came out in the book team of rivals, but those of us who have, who have studied the civil war for, you know, decades for a long time, have read about it, know how, little Lincoln was esteemed as he came into the presidency. He was a compromised candidate at the convention among many people. He certainly was a compromised presidential election winner. There were four people uh, in the presidential election of 1860. He certainly would have lost if the Democrats would have been unified, if my math works, but maybe I'm not remembering correctly, but clearly the, the, the constitutional union party and all the other things that sprang up in 1860 helped cause his election. But as Lincoln moves on through his term, through his time as president, you can see the admiration of people like, for example, William Seward grow that this man is the right man to lead us. Did Stevens have that same evolution or did he become more and more upset with Lincoln as Lincoln wanted a softer peace? I think Stevens remains critical of Lincoln throughout Lincoln's presidency. That does not mean that he failed to recognize uh, uh, Lincoln's positive attributes. He said more than once that he thought this was the, you know, there was no more honest individual on the face of the earth or words to that effect. But he thought Lincoln was too slow in moving in the direction of slavery and equal rights. Um, When the Emancipation Proclamation is declared, Stevens is ecstatic. When, contrary to many worries, Lincoln enacts or finalizes the Emancipation Proclamation on the first day of the new year of 1864, Stevens is thrilled uh, and uh, uh, praises the proclamation and calls for its vigorous enactment. Wherever Lincoln takes a step forward, Stevens applauds. Where Lincoln fails to move forward, Stevens either criticizes him publicly or grumbles privately among members of his party. If you were making a list of the most hated men (laughs) by the South, by Southerners during the Civil War, with the caveat that number one may just actually be Jefferson Davis, but that's a whole nother, <laughs> that's a whole nother podcast. Where would Stevens rank 
in terms of just being absolutely loathed as a black Republican by the staunchest defenders of the peculiar institution? He rang pretty highly. Uh, and that brings us to a story that I think you uh, alluded to earlier. So if you don't mind, please, um, I will retell that. And that is to say, <clears throat> in the summer of 1863, in the course of the invasion of Pennsylvania, that leads to the epic Battle of Gettysburg. One of Lee's generals, Jubal Early, makes a determined visit to an ironworks owned by Thaddeus Stevens and has that those ironworks burned to the ground. And when the, the uh, on-site manager of the ironworks asks Early, why is he making a point of singling out this enterprise, Early says, because Thaddeus Stevens has done more than anyone else in the U.S. government to attack the Confederacy and to undermine the Confederacy. And I think in that moment, we get a sense of just what the leadership of the Confederacy thinks and knows about Thaddeus Stevens that despite the fact that he is not the president, despite the fact that he never makes it into the Senate, that he's not even the, the majority leader in the House of Representatives, he is a dynamic force moving the Republican Party forward. Uh, he's also the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee and is in charge, therefore, of making sure that the Union Armed Forces have everything they need to prosecute the war. But even more fundamentally, I think, he is one of the key spark plugs in pushing the Union, not only to militarily engage the Confederacy, but to go after its central economic, social, and cultural institution, slavery. We should pause to note that on the list of particularly loathsome Southerners, Jubal Early would be very high. He's a singularly disgraceful person quite unpleasant fellow what was thaddeus stevens reaction to the assassination of abraham lincoln shock and mourning and concern that this would mean the elevation into the presidency of someone who he didn't want even to be the vice president, Andrew Johnson, from the slave state of Tennessee. Johnson, who had himself once upon a time been a minor slaveholder and who was a thoroughgoing racist. When Johnson was placed on the Republican ticket in 1860, Stevens basically turns to the man who informed him of this and says, effectively, Expletive deleted. Couldn't you, have found, <laughs> couldn't you have found a vice president without going down into one of the slave states for him? And very early, Stevens' worst fears are realized when Andrew Johnson begins trying to uh, uh, reunify the country on terms as close to those preferred by the Confederate elite as circumstances would allow, which is to say with slavery gone, but with white supremacy still in the saddle. Where does, there are a few things in history that I've, I've not read a lot about sometimes because I can't really bring myself to it. I've never really read a lot about the Holocaust. I've read about books that touch on the Holocaust in great detail, but I've never read like one book because um, I just don't know if I can get through it, to be quite candid. In terms of the United States, of, of the United States history, of all the things about which I've read, the one that makes you just shake your head the most is Reconstruction, that we so got this, I hate to say wrong, so please tell me if you think that's wrong. But to me, it's, it's, it's the great political tragedy of our history beyond slavery and beyond uh, Native Americans, the one, the, polit the biggest political process tragedy. 
Am I way off on that? Or well, is that something that you've talked about in the book quite a bit? Well, I, I, if you don't mind, I'd like to put the shoe on the other foot and ask you in what way you find it a tragedy. Because we had an opportunity to, to remake uh, the experience of, of former slaves, and not just former slaves, but African-Americans as a whole in this country. I mean, it wasn't like African-Americans in the North were exalted, obviously, right. Right, right. E- even after their service in the Civil War, even after the example of people like Frederick Douglass, um, and that we lacked the political will or the political will had been exhausted by the crusade of the actual civil war and Americans in the North were just like, all right, we've had enough of these people. Let's just, you know, we talk about world war one and world war two wanted to bring the troops home. Well, that was the same thing in the civil war. They wanted to bring the, the Northern boys back and the political will to impose ourselves and remake Southern society and Southern governments gradually just dissipated and into the void, into the vacuum were people like Nathan Bedford Forrest and Jubal Early and organizations like the Klan. And to me, if we had been a little more forthright, even though I think Ulysses S. Grant's getting stronger marks for his presidency than he did a generation ago, that we wouldn't have blown this magnificent opportunity to avoid the first and second Jim Crow eras. Well, I completely agree with you. Um, and, and, and Thaddeus Stevens would certainly agree with you. Um, Stevens firmly believed, and retrospectively, I can only agree, that this was the opportunity and this was the necessity to firmly impose upon the former slave states not only abolition, but thoroughgoing legal and political equality. And to keep control of those states long enough to stamp out white supremacist terrorism. Um, And that's why Stevens didn't want to allow these states back into the union on an equal basis until those things were accomplished. But as you say, a good deal of the energy of uh, behind uh, that cause was expended in the course of the Civil War. I think we often, for example, don't think about the following. The first people, or at least among the first people to join the Union Army, would have been those men with the strongest anti-slavery sentiments. Consequently, a disproportionate number of those people would be killed in the course of the Civil War, and that has to have political consequences. If the most mm. anti-slavery people are losing numbers like that, that's going to affect the politics of what's left. Now, running contrary to that, it, going in the opposite direction is the growing determination on the part of other surviving Northerners that Uh, If we don't act firmly, all the blood and treasure expended in the course of the Civil War is going to be lost. But eventually the energy gives way. And the fact is that the Northern population as a whole was never very firmly committed to racial equality to begin with. They didn't like slavery but they certainly wouldn't have gone to war in the first place in order to put an end to slavery. It took a threat to the federal union to get them to support war. But now they're being asked to keep a huge number of people under arms for the sake, it seemed to them, of enforcing something they didn't really believe in or didn't believe in very strongly, racial equality. And meanwhile, Business interests in the North, who also didn't want to see the West uh, become slave society and also didn't want to see the uh, Federal Union destroyed, basically felt that they had accomplished what they most needed by the end of the Civil War. They had control uh, of the federal government. They had abolished slavery and made room for their own form of free labor capitalism. They had a tariff. 
of protective tariffs. They had federal support for a transnational railroad, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Their commitment to continuing the fight for racial equality in the South was ebbing very quickly. This was the last great opportunity short of the middle of the 20th century to transform social and political relations in the South and the union proved unable or unwilling to do the job. The last few minutes we have on the Leaders and Legends podcast were with Professor Bruce Levine, who has written a new biography of Thaddeus Stevens. Is it fair to say that the coda of the American Civil War in some ways is the impeachment trial of Andrew Johnson? If so, or please say that there's something else that you would put in that category, what was Stevens's role in that before his death in 1868? Well, I would say it's, if this is literarily possible, it's a coda. It's also possible, I suppose, to say, <laughs> to say that all of Reconstruction is a coda of, of the Civil War. But Stevens becomes convinced that Andrew Johnson is indeed a major obstacle to doing what needs to be done in the South. And I think it's clear that he's right. Andrew Johnson uh, is happy to see slavery abolished, but past that, he is giving the old elite uh, of the South virtually free reign. Having been forced to give up slavery, the South is passing very strongly discriminatory legislation called the Black Codes in the South that deprive the former slaves of most of their legal and all of their political rights and uh, are enforcing white supremacy with acts of terror. The Congress passes laws to try to uh, hold that back and place the South under military control for a while, Andrew Johnson starts replacing the firmest generals with generals who are willing to allow uh, 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 the Southern white leadership greater leeway. In other words, getting in the way of implementing Reconstruction. So Thaddeus Stevens joins forces with other Republicans calling for the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. And the House, as you know, does indeed impeach Andrew Johnson. And the House takes the case to the Senate. Thaddeus Stevens is one of the House's uh, impeachment managers. They make a strong case, but they fail by the slimmest of margins to obtain the supermajority vote that they needed because the moderate wing of their own party will not go along with uh, removing Johnson from office. And so, uh, and, and so the impeachment process does not culminate in Johnson's removal. And I, am, I am way searching my memory here. If Johnson had been removed, would the president have been Schuyler Colfax? The Speaker of the House, who was from Indiana, later Vice President under Grant? Well, um, I think not, because I, I think it would have been Benjamin Wade. From Ohio, the radical senator. Uh, and that's one reason why uh, the moderate Republicans don't want to impeach Johnson, because they don't want a radical like Wade to get that kind of political power. We end all Leaders and Legends podcasts with the same five questions to everyone. Professor Levine, are you ready? They're harmless, I promise. Didn't anticipate this. Okay, let's go. (laughs) (laughs) What was your first job? Working on the back of a garbage truck. What was your first concert? Playing a cello at my own graduation. What was your first concert where you saw someone we may have heard of? 
Gladys Knight and the Pips. Love it. That's a first. Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Wow. That is a tough one. The, the last three are tough for historians. I apologize. James McPherson, Battle Cry of Freedom. It was my textbook when I was an undergrad for my civil war class. You had a good teacher. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, which event would you choose? Passage of the 13th Amendment. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours completely off the record, whom would you choose? Pass. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody comes to mind. Barack Obama, George W. Bush, Raquel Welch. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just flubbing this, but I can't think of a single individual who... Uh, I would most want to sit down uh, to dinner with. Isn't that sad? Got a favorite sports team? Nope. Favorite comedian? Oh, my. You're really pushing me. (laughs) Isn't that what you did with your students? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm I'm, I'm sorry. I've run out of gas. How about we both just have dinner with our friend Peter Carmichael? from Gettysburg College. Fair enough. A, a terrific man. Uh, have you thought about sending, last question before we end the podcast, have you thought about sending a copy of your biography to Tommy Lee Jones? I think you should. Uh, all the members of my family insist that I do so. Terrific. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, Leaders and Legends LLC, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been Professor Emeritus of History at the University of Illinois, Bruce Levine, who has written a new book called Thaddeus Stevens, Civil War Revolutionary, Fighter for Racial Justice. Thank you, Professor, very much for coming on the Leaders and Legends podcast. It was a lot of fun. Thank you, Robert Bain. I enjoyed it tremendously. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Veteran Strategies.